Well, good morning. I know what you're thinking. What on earth does this passage have to do with Christmas? What is going on here? And uh, there are some things that, that, you know, go along with Christmas, right? Um, and, and seem fitting for Christmas. And, and we're probably thinking, this, this whole situation with Tamar and Judah is just mind-boggling. As I said the other week, uh, some of these stories in the Scripture make um, Jerry Springer and, and Maury Povich look like Sesame Street. And, um, and God has put them in the Bible for our edification and for communicating his truths. And so I'm glad, in fact, even though it makes us squirm a little bit, makes us feel kind of awkward and embarrassed that God puts these things out there. Because let's be honest, there's some stuff in our lives that, that we don't want anybody to know about. That, And when we read this, it kind of makes us feel like, oh, my family ain't so bad. And, um, and so um, the title of today's message is Recognize, Recognize. And uh, when I was growing up, recognize was like sort of a slang term, if, it, it, term, if you will. You, you would say to somebody, Man, you better recognize, like, um, I'm the greatest player on this basketball team. You better recognize, or maybe even a parent might say, you better recognize I'm your mother, boy, and I, I, I brought you into this world, and I take you out of this world. You better recognize, like wake up and pay attention to what's going on here. And so uh, recognize is what God wants us to do here in this story with Tamar and Judah. And so I got a couple pictures here just because we think about things that belong with Christmas, right? Uh, let's, let's show them some of those pictures, right? This belongs with Christmas, right? Not the perverted Jim Carrey one. I don't know what happened with the Jim Carrey one. And uh, just that, that, that one creeps me out. The next one there, the Grinch, uh, right? Santa Claus. I was like, okay, we see that around Christmas. Let's keep going there. Um, right? Baby Jesus. This is the whole reason for Christmas is the Christ child came. And um, right? Some good old George Bailey, right? For those of you who know, um, it's a wonderful life. And we watched that just the other day. It's a great, great movie there. Uh, let's see what else we got. Maybe, maybe for you, it's the red cup, right? It's like, I got to get the special Starbucks cup at Christmas. Uh, let's see what else we got. Uh, yes, Ralphie, my all-time favorites. Don't shoot your eye out. Like, these things belong at Christmas, right? Uh, we got, and this one. This is one of my favorites here. I love Elf. And, um, uh, but then, then, uh, is this the last one? Yeah. This one is like, wait, does this belong at Christmas? I don't know. What is this? And this is a picture of maybe Tamar. I don't, I don't really know. Okay. But it's just like, how does this fit? And this makes no sense whatsoever in our minds. But the reality is we'll see how this fits. And if you were here last week, you noticed the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus Christ includes this woman, Tamar. And so how does that fit with Christmas? And so um, really God is, is going to teach us about his character. Sometimes we read the Bible, right? And we try like good Christians to read the Bible and we read it to our kids. And, and sometimes we read it the wrong way. We read the Bible as, as if it's a book of just moral stories and we are to copy the moral stories, right? And it's like, well, what do I tell my kids about this? Because everybody's misbehaving here, right? There's nobody acting right in this story. Really what we look for when we read the scriptures is we look to see what is the character of God in the midst of this story. How does this passage teach us about who God is? And how does this point to Jesus Christ? Because the all of scripture is about Jesus. As, as it said in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so all of the scripture is really about Jesus. So how do we learn about the character of Jesus 
um, and the character of God through the story. So a couple things here I'd, I'd like for you um, to, to write down. Number one, it, first, is that we see that Tamar helps us recognize God's concern for justice. We see that Tamar helps us recognize God's concern for justice. God has a heart for justice for the downcast, for the vulnerable, for the weak, for the, the marginalized. And, and this is big on God's priority list. And um, I'm going to use some terms here that I don't typically use, but to help bring some things in our modern day to help us see that as Christians, we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And, um, and so sometimes there are world systems, worldly systems that begin to influence the church and begin to influence Christians. And we have to be so careful as we live in this world that we don't let these worldly systems mess us up and, 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 and muddy up the truths of the Scripture. And so two, two words here, uh, words like uh, liberal and conservative, words you won't find in the Bible, wor- words that honestly represent worldly human systems. And uh, my good friend, Pastor Nate, over at the Journey Street, he said, I, I, I don't use those words because those are words that people use to gain power, right? If, if I can get you on a team of liberal consent, then I can have power over you. And so as Christians, we have to be careful that we are not uh, influenced above the Scripture by liberal or conservative ideologies because, first of all, those are worldly systems made by men. And they do not trump the Bible. And they're going to change over time. What was once liberal is, is now conservative. What was once conservative is now liberal. And those things change from time to time depending on what's popular and what's cool. And so as, as believers, we've always got to take our cues from the Bible. And so somebody might say, Pastor, talking about justice and issues of social justice, that's like a liberal issue. That's not on God's heart. But again, when you read the Bible, you see God's concern for social justice issues. And we'll see that here with Tamar. And so I want us to see this woman, Tamar. I want us to recognize her, to truly see her as somebody who is in the genealogy of Jesus. I want us to feel her pain. And I believe the scriptures want us to see that as well. So let's backtrack. We didn't read these verses earlier, uh, but let's look at the first five verses to kind of set the stage here in Genesis 38. It says this, Genesis 38, one through five, it says, at that time, Judah. So here's this other character story. His name is Judah. He left his brothers and he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Verse 2, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. That's an important thing there. He married her and he lay with her and she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son who was named Ur. It's like they were getting ready to name him something and and he just was like, Ur. Oh, his name's Ur. And it was like, no, I wasn't done yet. So be careful. Uh, now they have us write that down when you're in the hospital. That's, that's definitely helpful. Uh, verse 4. She conceived again and gave birth to uh, a son and named him Onan. And then verse 5, she gave birth still uh, to another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. And so just quickly here, we see an introduction to this other character named Judah. And he is part of, uh, you have kind of the three successions of people that God revealed themselves to Abraham, then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and then Judah was a part of of that group there. He was part of the brothers that had Joseph as a brother, the coat of many colors. And in fact, it was Judah who decided to sell his brother 
into slavery. So we get a picture of the type of person that Judah is. We also see a little bit of a picture here uh, with Judah is that he is a guy who knows about God's truth. He knows the Bible. He knows the scriptures. His family is a family that God spoke to, but yet he plays fast and loose with God's commands, and he does not obey them. He has been commanded not to intermarry with the Canaanite because they were evil and wicked people, and God said, don't be unequally yoked to them. Don't love them. Be, be, be blessed them, but you can't get married to them because they believe differently than you, and it's going to cause trouble for your marriage. And so don't marry a Canaanite. And what does Judah do? We see right here. He marries a Canaanite. And so we get this impression, uh, and he had sold his brother into slavery just last chapter in Genesis 37, and uh, that, that he's a guy who's kind of lukewarm at best. He knows about God's truth, but he refuses to obey. Maybe he's just been around church for a long time, and he's familiar with all the church teachings, but unwilling to obey and, and follow Jesus. And so that's Judah. He's kind of the, the character, and he has these three sons. And now let's, let's look at, at where Tamar enters the picture here. Verse 6 says, Judah got a wife for Ur. That's his firstborn. And notice the words there, got a wife. Uh, typically, this would imply, again, uh, in those times as women were often treated uh, way worse than a second-class citizen, uh, they were treated as property. And, um, and so to get a wife means there was some sort of transaction to pay for that. And, um, and it was totally against her will and her wishes. And even the term got there, uh, you know, implies that this was probably even worse than the normal traditions. And, um, and so he's, he's got a wife. This is Tamar here. And so she's a young girl. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. I want you to see Tamar here. She gets married at a young age to this guy. She's bought his, his property, and, and now her husband is so wicked that God has to put him to death. I don't know about you. There's a lot of p wicked people in the world, right? And, and there's a few who God says, I'm going to take this person out because they are going to bring destruction uh, upon many, many people, and I'm going to take them out early because of their wickedness. And, and it happens again in a few occasions. This is one of them. But I, I just... I can't really imagine what kind of wicked guy he was. And, and, and it, the Bible doesn't tell us what he did, how, what his wickedness was. It just said he was so wicked that God had to take him out. Now, I want you to think about this. What would it be like to be married to a guy like that? Some commentators and scholars have maybe um, uh, theorized that probably Tamar was, was, was abused by her husband. I, I don't know that you could say that, but we can certainly say probably the relationship wasn't good in her home life was not great. If, if the man is that wicked that God has to take him out, there's got to be some trouble in the home and got to be some trouble in their relationship. So now she's a widow. And then look what happens next. Verse 8 says this, then Judah, so that's the, the father, said to Onan, that's his second son. He says, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. All right, but let's just pause right there because that's another thing. Like, we should be shocked about a lot in this passage. Like, now we're shocked about that, and we don't necessarily need to be. So let's just understand what's going on in their society. In their society, in the agrarian society, widows and women could not get a job for themselves. And in order to be successful in their society, they had to be connected to a man. So let's, I know it's not right. Okay? Let's not judge that society. It's just the way it was. They had to be connected to a man who would be their provider. And they had to have children, and typically male children, who would then provide for them at the back end. 
And, and so what would happen is there was a custom that if the husband died, they would, in order to keep it within the family, they would uh, get together with the brother-in-law. And to, that, to us, that sounds completely gross and weird and all that sort of stuff, but it was part of their society. In fact, later on in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 25, it, it was actually commanded. It's called the Leverite Law, and Leverite is Latin for the word brother-in-law. And, and so while we view this as kind of like gross and icky, we need to view this as this is a way to provide for widows and vulnerable people. Because if she was left barren and without a husband, she's going to die. Or best case scenario, she's going to have to sell her body, and, and she was already sort of doing that, as a prostitute. And so there was no life. There was no welfare system. There was no other systems in place to help these women. This was the system that God gave at, to help vulnerable people who, who would otherwise be left destitute without children to help provide for them, without a husband to help provide. So this was a way to provide, if you will, social welfare for those who were down and out, who could not provide for them, because she couldn't just go out and get a job, and she couldn't provide for herself, so she was going to die. And in an agrarian society, this was a very helpful thing to do, and so it's called the Leverite law system, a Leverite marriage. But notice, so, so he, she goes to the the, the second brother, but the second brother is also a wicked man. And, and, and the Bible tells us that he does not want to provide children for her. In fact, he just wants to use her for her body. So he uses her and abuses her. And because of that, in verse 10, if you skip ahead to verse 10, it says that be, what he did, and, and what he did was using and abusing her, failing to provide for her. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. And again, you can read more in verse 9. This, this little, you know, awkward to read in public settings, but he, 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 he practiced an ancient form of birth control, folks. And, um, and, and by doing that, he said, I want the pleasure of this relationship, but I'm not going to provide children for you because providing children for you would mean I would have to pay for them and then I would be required to provide more for you and I don't want to do that. So I just want to use your body. And God says, no. That's not okay to treat my, my daughters, to treat my image bearers in that way. And so God puts him to death. So now she's twice a widow. And then look what happens in verse 11. Maybe there's hope here. Verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. I, I, we need to see how devastating this is here. He says he's going to provide for her. Hey, my son's a little too young to get married now. He's, he's, he's not old enough to get married. So go live back with your own people, and then I'll call you. Don't call us. We'll call you. But you can see from the verse there, right, the end of the verse, he has no intention of actually providing for her and helping her out. What does he say? Man, if 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 I let my third son marry, he might die too. You know what he thinks? He thinks the problem is with her. He's unwilling to see the problem in his own family, how his, as a parent, his own wickedness is now transferring down to his kids. He's unwilling. He's justifying his own behavior of his own sons, and he's failing to see that. And he says, the problem's got to be with her. She's a black widow. You know, everybody, she's bad news. She's bad luck. And so the one man, listen to me now, the, the one 
man responsible for her pushes her away. The one person who can help her wants nothing to do with her. Do you see her? Childless, husbandless, twice widowed, hopeless now. Do you see Tamar? Do you feel her pain? Because God is, is giving this to us so that we can see that and see how destitute she is. Because there's no hope for her now. Who is going to marry somebody like her? Both of your husbands died? No way. Not taking a chance. And here's the ironic thing, is that she was pledged to the third brother. So even if, if she did find some guy to marry her, she couldn't. She would be committing adultery because she was already, already pledged to the third, the youngest son, even though the father had no intentions of ever letting them get married. And this is a great wickedness here, and God puts this before us. And then Tamar decides to uh, create her own uh, situation, her own solution here, which, again, the Bible does not uh, support but it wants us to understand what's going on. So look with me at verse 12 here. Notice the word there in verse 12. After a long time. Scholars debate about how long it might be. Some say it was 20 years. Some say that, that, that Shiloh was only a few years younger than his other brothers. And, um, and, and so probably she only had to wait one or two years. Uh, we don't know. Either way, the Bible uses the word there, a long time. Again, Helping us remember that Judah had no intentions of providing for this woman, of helping this woman out. And so look what happens in verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, this is where Brother Dan was reading for us, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, so that's Judah, his wife died. He went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. Some scholars say that's a euphemism there. What would go on in Timnah is a way to celebrate uh, with adultery and all kinds of other things. Shearing a sheep, that's, there was a large party that would often go on there. And so he's saying he's going with his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Again, that's, that's what scholars say. We don't know that from the scriptures. Uh, but then look what, what Tamar does. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though, watch this. You guys with me? You still track me? For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. She realized this, and so she's got her own plan. Now, it makes you wonder that this plan that she has to dress up like a prostitute and, and trap Judah, um, how did she know that would work? What does that tell us about Judah? I mean, you know, what are the chances if I dress up like a, a prostitute and stand beside the side of the road that he's just going to walk past me? But no, she, she knew. He's a man who plays fast and loose with God's commands, even though he knows the truth. This is going to work. And so this is crazy here. But, but what we have going on here, and look down with me. Um, and so you, you guys, we, we read it earlier. They sleep together. He, he, get, he doesn't have any money to pay for her, so he says, I'll give you a goat on another day. And she says, give me a pledge, right? And the pledge was uh, his, his seal, his cord, and his staff. And, and what is that? Well, his seal is, is something that, that a rich man, a man of privilege would have. Um, it is, he would use it to sign documents, that sort of stuff. You may be familiar with like a ring, like back in the days. But this was a seal. And a cord, typically it was tied around the neck. And, uh, and that would prove that it was him. Uh, sometimes it was tied to the staff. It would be the, the leather cord on the staff. Other times it would just be tied around the neck. And, uh, and so people say, like, this is the equivalent of him leaving his wallet, driver's license, and all his personal identification with her. Like, keep this, right, and then I'll send you the goat. 
And then obviously she disappears. They go to look for her and uh, and bring the goat. They can't find her. And then Judah's like, all right, let's keep this quiet, right? We're not going to search all right. Because what does it look like to go all around the town? Like, hey, I'm looking for a prostitute. Uh, I need to pay her from, you know, like that's embarrassing. And so he he's like, hey, just come on home and don't worry about that. But look what happens in verse 24. Look what happens in verse 24. We see the obvious double standard here for men and women. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Now look look at how this infuriates Judah, the, the, the moral expert here, right? Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. By biblical standards, this is even extra punishment uh, for what the, it would be required. They, they, they could be put to death or something like this. Burning, this sort of torturing, is even a little too extra. You can see that his heart is murderous with rage towards her. But you also see the obvious double standard. He's fine, and as a man, he's perfectly allowed to have a prostitute, right? But the moment she is, is uh, impure, oh, she gets burned. But watch how she uses this. She uses his own hypocrisy against him by doing this. And so th this is what goes on here. As she acted as a prostitute, he's, he's furious. And in fact, in Hebrew, the, the word here is just two words. He says, take, burn. Like he is just furious at her. Take and burn her. This is, I can't believe she would act like this. What I knew, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. She was bad from the beginning. She's the reason my boy's died. I knew it. He had to make himself believe something bad about her in order to justify all of his behavior and all, all the things that he did. But then notice what happens. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. She said this, I am pregnant. Notice that this is as she's being brought out to the fire, folks. She sends this message. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you, check out the word there recognize, recognize, in fact, in Hebrew, it's hawker, now, recognize, please, recognize, please, whose seal and cord and staff these are. And then, of course, in verse 26, it would say, Judah recognized them. And then he would go on to say, in verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalom. Notice this, that he says, she is more righteous than I. Now, again, this is not saying she has done right. It's saying she is more righteous than I am because I have withheld justice from a widow. I've withheld justice from a vulnerable woman, and she has shown herself to be of a higher, higher moral character than I am. And praise God that he's able to see that. But I need you to know that there is a concern, as I said before, is that Tamar helps us see God's concern for social justice, for justice to become uh, as part of people who are unable to help themselves. In a society, there are basic things every person needs in order to be accepted, assimilated, and introduced in that part of society, right? Back in their day, education didn't mean anything, right? You could have a degree from Harvard back then, and they would say, can you plow a field? Can you milk a goat? Like, we don't care about your education. So education didn't mean anything. And, and having children was important, and especially male children. You could provide heirs, and they would be able to provide financially for you and all that sort of stuff. You could work the land. You could provide for a family. Those were things that were important. Those, and so there are things that people need in order to exist in a society, and not everybody gets those equally. And what God is saying to us, those who have 
the ability and the privilege and the power need to help those who don't. We see this all through the Bible frequently. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it says this. He, that's God, Deuteronomy 10, 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and what? Clothing. Why does God care so much about the orphan or the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner? Because those are people in a society that are vulnerable, that don't have what it takes to be accepted in that society. And so we need to give them extra care. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17, it says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherler of justice. There's the word. Or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. And, and taking their cloak uh, is an important piece of clothing. that was multi, It was like a multi-tool back in those days. It was like a pillow. It was a hat. It was a scarf. It was their cloak. It was their blanket. Like It was very important. And so to take that as a pledge from a widow was was hard to do. And, and so and 11 times just in the book of Deuteronomy, 11 times just in the few chapters of Deuteronomy, we see this phrase, the fatherless, the widow, the, the foreigner. Uh, in fact, you can go all throughout Psalms. You can go to Isaiah. You can go to Jeremiah. The people are called to account God's people. And, and if you were here with us uh, the past month, we were studying the book of Micah, which they were called to account for the same thing, for how they treated the poor amongst them. When you have the ability to help them, you need to help them. In fact, uh, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. So we just read chapter 24. Tw chapter 25 tells them about the Leverite law system. Hey, provide for a widow by providing one of your other sons. And in fact, in the Bible, uh, in chapter 25, it, it was to say this. Imagine, if you will, this happening. If the son did not want to provide, the widow was allowed to go to the elders of the village and say, hey, this guy doesn't want to provide for me. The elders were to talk to him and say, hey, man, you need to provide for her. If he still said no, she was supposed to take off his sandal, spit in his face, and then he would be forever labeled as the unsandaled one. And so would his family. Not because he had stinky feet, but because he failed to provide justice and help for those who needed help. And that was God's standard, and the people refused to do that. And in fact, here's, here's Tamar. She couldn't speak up. She couldn't say anything about this. Because these people, Judah, who wouldn't know about God's ways, was, was unwilling to follow them. And so this is a big deal. Gen, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19 says this. Cursed is anyone, cursed is anyone who withholds what? Justice from the foreigner, from the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, amen. This past week um, at Wheaton Bible College, there was a Great Commission, Great Commandment conference featuring uh, well-known Southern Baptist speakers, uh, Beth Moore, Ed Stetzer, uh, Christine Kane, who, who runs a ministry for uh, human trafficking, and as Brother Dan read for us, Max Lucado, well-known Christian author and pastor. And, um, and they were dealing with this issue of abuse, especially towards women. So the whole conference geared towards helping survivors of abuse and sex abuse. But it was at that conference for the first time ever that Max Lucado said, I myself was abused. He's been a Christian author and pastor. I mean, he's probably 60, uh, if not. And for the first time, it's now come to a point in his life where he feels the freedom to say it publicly. And he said this, because they were, they were saying, hey, that, that's what the whole Me Too movement is, is adding my name to the list. Yes, I have been abused, and I have been unable to speak out. I have been harassed. And so Max Lucado said this, my name is also on that list of those who have been abused. And it shook people because they'd never heard him say this before. They never heard him write about it or talk about it. 
And he said, now is the time for us, for me as a pastor, for me as a community leader, to begin listening. Now is the time for across-the-table conversations that begin with the words, help me understand what it's like to be you. Help me understand what it's like to be a woman in this day and age. Help me understand what it's like to never go out on a jog or a walk without being afraid to carry a canister of mace. Help me to know what it's like to overhear guys chuckling about your weight or your bus size. Help me to understand what it's like to always be outnumbered in a boardroom or other places. Help me understand what it's like to be hugged chest to chest and unable to break free. Help me understand what it's like to fear filing a workplace complaint against someone because all of your supervisors are male and nothing will happen. Or you may be fired or demoted by filing such a complaint. Help me to understand what it's like to be the brunt of cat calls, whistles, dirty jokes. Help me to understand what it's like to be you. Jesus talked about helping the least of these. That would be the equivalent of the widows and orphans in those times. And so God cares about this, and this is high on God's priority. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus was talking to the religious people who were all about their ties, all about the Bible, all about all the stuff they were getting right. They were so self-righteous, and they were so, uh, man, just look how awesome we are. And he says this, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth, that's a tithe. And look how detailed. They tithe so much. They tithe everything they had. They even tithe their, their little spices, their mint and their dill and cumin. Could you imagine taking 10%, right? You, you got all these crumpled up leaves, and, uh, and, and then you're going to break them down into 10%. I'm going to give this to the Lord. It's a little 10% of my little spices, right? And these guys were thinking they're so spiritual. They're so righteous. They're so good. They're so moral. But then he says this. You have neglected the what? The more important or the weightier matters of the law. And what are the more important or the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he said, look, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting. I'm not saying you shouldn't be tithing, but you should have practiced the latter. You should have made sure you were that you are blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And so Tamar teaches us, helps us recognize, that's point number one, God's concern for justice. And this is a big deal. As we were just, again, in the book of Micah, Micah 6, 8, right? Uh, which is, you know what is good, O man, right? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. These are important. Secondly, though, secondly, and we'll move kind of quick through this, is that Judah helps us recognize that we all must be born again. Judah helps us recognize that we all must be born again. And so if we were to throw around terms that I, 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 again, I do not like liberal conservative, maybe we're like, yeah, social justice, liberal issue, right? Oh, personal sin, personal accountability, born again, conservative issue. No, these are biblical issues, and both of them need to be on the heart and the minds of believers because we are in the world, not of the world. We're not influenced by worldly systems. We're not discipled by worldly systems. We're discipled by the word of God. Judah helps us recognize we must all be born again. As we said before, he's a nominal believer. His family, out of all people on the earth, know more about God and God's character and God's ways. And yet we don't see Judah acting this way. He's not a pagan. He's probably a little bit self-righteous thinking, oh, I've heard growing up all about the stories of God, all about the greatness of God. He's heard all this stuff. But he doesn't live it, and he needs to wake up. He needs to recognize. He needs to have a spiritual awakening that he is heading down a path, and it began long ago. We saw the evidence of it as he got rid of his brother Joseph in Genesis 37, that he was heading down a wrong path. And then all throughout this chapter, we see 
his hypocrisy. We see his wickedness. And God in his grace is going to wake Judah up, I believe, through the actions of Tamar. And so check out what what happens again in verse 25. It says, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these things, she said. And she added, see if you, what? Recognize, hawker, nah, recognize, please, whose seal and cord and staff these are. I don't think she's really wanting him. Maybe she is because she's just a human instrument in God's hand. God is wanting him to recognize something even better. God is saying, Judah, recognize your own heart. Recognize how twisted, how hypocritical, how prideful, how arrogant, how self-righteous your heart is. You are ready to burn this woman for something you do all the time. You have sold your brother into slavery. You, You are not doing right. Judah, recognize your own sin. But you know what happens to all of us? All of us, everybody in this room, including me. We will justify our behavior in a heartbeat, right? We all want to make ourselves look good, want to pretend like we don't do any wrong and all this sort of stuff. We all do that. And God has to say to us, no, you are sinful before a holy God. Recognize and wake up. You need to be born again. You need to have a spiritual awakening with a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and submit your life to him and follow his ways and his ways only. You must become a new creation. This is God's grace saying, wake up, Judah, wake up. Being a good person isn't enough. Trying hard isn't enough. You have a character flaw. I have a character flaw that we don't see, right? If we saw it, we would do something about it. And the reality is the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All human beings. And we fall short of God's glory. And it says the wages of sin is is death. And we are accountable to a holy God, and we must be born again. And so we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps uh, We need to be spiritually awakened, and God will use the trials. God will use the Tamars. God will use those things to show us how wicked we are in our own lives. Notice how he was so concerned, right, with Tamar. Burn her, right? And and notice, and we have to guard against this in our own heart, and you know you've had a spiritual awakening, right? When, When you are less concerned about all the evil people outside, and you're more concerned with the evil person on the inside, Right. The greatest problem in the world is not our politics, not uh, other nations. The greatest problem in the world is me. And until my heart is changed and made new by the Lord Jesus Christ, I will continue to perpetuate that problem. And every day that I don't live my life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I continue to prepare. I need to come to God daily and be renewed by his word, by his spirit and living a gospel centered life that empowers me to love others, to love the weak and the vulnerable, to love those who are bigoted and all those sorts of things, that's the power of Christ that happens in me. God is after all of us. He's the hound of heaven. I won't, I won't belabor this, but it's interesting to watch this word recognize, or hakar na, yaker is, is the Hebrew word, all throughout um, Genesis, especially this chapter. In Genesis 37, I'll show it to you really quickly, in verse 31, when Judah had gotten rid of his brother Joseph, right, and they did his robe, right, they, they got Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe, in blood, they brought it to their father. And check out the next verse, verse 32. <clears throat> Go ahead, throw it up there for me. They took the ornate robe back to their father, and they said, we found it. Translated, examine, but hawker not. Recognize, please. Recognize it to see whether it is your son's robe. And then it says that their father, um, Jacob or Israel, he 
recognize. It says, it is my son's robe. And so notice, this is the word there that's going on. And, uh, and, and one Hebrew scholar said this. He said, Judah, the Holy One says to you, you deceived your father with a kid. Tamar will deceive you with a kid. You said, hocker not to your father by your life. Tamar will say, hocker not to you. Recognize. Wake up. And then later in Genesis 40, when Judah is before his brother Joseph as the, the, the second in command of all of Egypt, it says that they did not recognize. They did not hocker not him. But then he tested them, right? If you're familiar with this passage, they, they tested the brothers, and they wanted to see if they had had a change of heart to see if they had become different, especially Judah. And so Joseph sets up this whole elaborate scheme to test them and put something in their backpack and all that sort of stuff. And, and then they end up sort of taking the youngest brother. And Judah steps up and says, don't take my youngest brother. It's going to kill my dad. But he says this. Instead, this is what Judah says, take me. I give up my life. And I think that's evidence that Judah had been born again. His heart had been radically changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was willing to lay down his life. And so in closing is this, is that both Judah and Tamar help us recognize Jesus as our only hope. That's the third point. Judah and Tamar help us recognize that Jesus is our only hope. Amen? Neither one of them are behaving correctly. Neither, have, neither one of them are doing what's right. And so they are pointing us to a greater Savior. I want you to think about this for Tamar, because Judah looked at her, and despite her sin, stay with me now, despite her sin, he said, you are righteous. Oh, how all of us need Jesus to say, every one of us, despite your sin, sir, despite your sin, man, despite your sin, teenager, Jesus is willing to call you righteous because of what he did. And notice how Judah, right, was, was wanting to punish her for his own sin, for his own infidelity and wickedness and lust. Can I tell you about a greater Judah? Can I tell you about a greater Judah? The ultimate Judah? The genuine Judah? Who looks at us deserving punishment and instead of punishing us, he punishes himself on the cross for our sins. And, and how does this tie together with, with, with Christmas in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3? In chapter 1 verse 3, we read this last week, we see this family here. Judah, the father, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ right before the birth of Christ. Judah, the father of Perez, that was one of the twins, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This is the family line of Jesus. And I believe it's like Jesus is wanting to say to all of us, I don't want to edit anyone out of my story. Like, this is a mess, right? Again, this is disgrace. On, if this happened in your family, you wouldn't tell anybody in this church about this, right? Right? I mean, this is... This is gross. You, wouldn't, you would be so embarrassed. And God is saying, I'm open with my family lineage, and these are the people I'm unashamed to call my family. Re regardless of the disgrace in your life, regardless of the mess and all the stuff that goes on in your family, I am unwilling to edit you out of my story. Because I'm an expert at taking broken people and redeeming and restoring their lives and bringing glory out of their gross mess. And so I have a challenge for all of us at Christmas. God is not willing to edit you out of his story. He'll use anybody the Tamars and Judas and their deception and lies and injustice, God would use you. But can I give you this closing uh, challenge? Don't edit others out of God's story, please. Don't, don't edit others out of God's story. And especially at Christmas time, we run into that temptation, right? You got family, right? And they're kind of like Judas and Tamars. 
And the temptation is, right, I've done this. Me and my wife, we've been guilty of this, right? Uh, this is just full honesty. We will sometimes plan holiday get-togethers like SEAL Team 6 is planning. Like, we're going to arrive at 0800. We're going to have coffee and biscuits. We're going to open presents, and then we're out of there, okay? We're not staying for lunch. I'm not dealing with your family and your crazy mess. We're, we're coming out, okay? Like, this, this, we're not doing this. Can I just say, especially at this time of Christmas, don't edit others out. In fact, just press into them a little bit. Because if there's hope for Judas and Tamar, there's hope for your family. There's hope for my family. Press into them. Because if God could change their wicked life, and you can preach this. Preach to your family this week. God doesn't want to edit you out of the story. Come to him. Let him know, regardless of what you have done, you can come to Christ and he will forgive you. And he'll put your name on his list. Whether you've been naughty or nice, he's willing to forgive it all. And so I'm, I'm not saying that hot cocoa and some cookies are going to solve all the baggage your family's been going through for 40 years, right? Don't, don't misunderstand me either, right? And maybe you won't score a touchdown with your family this Christmas, but could you do this? Could you move the ball forward a little bit? Would that be a victory to, to demonstrating Christ to them, to saying God doesn't want to edit you out, I don't want to edit you out, even though I'd like to wring your neck? So I know you got kids coming home from college, you got grandkids, you got parents and all that sort of stuff, and it gets messy. But at this time, Remember the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you asking God for grace upon grace. God, I thank you that you give it by the ocean load, not by the truck load, but by the ocean load. You pour out grace to, to cover all of our wickedness, to cover all of our mistakes. And God, when we're honest here, we, our families aren't that much different than the Judas and Tamars. There are things we're hiding about our family. There are things we don't want to tell anybody. They're so embarrassing about ourselves. They're so hurtful. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bring freedom. You'd bring freedom to us who need your grace. And we'd feel a welcoming arm from you. And I pray for those here in this room who don't know you. Perhaps they would reach out to you and they would say, Jesus, I need to be born again. I need a spiritual awakening. I need to give my life to you and surrender my life to you. They would say something like this. Even in their heart, you could pray this right now. If you know that's you, you would say something like this. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. You would just pray that in your heart. Jesus, I surrender. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose on the third day. Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me for all my sin. I ask that you cleanse me from all of my wrong. And make me a new person. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer,